Welcome to Environment Deep Dive, a series from the Civil Service Environment Network. Through this series, we aim to explain and explore the biggest issues in environmental policy, talking to experts on topics across climate change, sustainable development, natural resources, and biodiversity and ecosystems. Hello, and welcome to the Civil Service Environment Network's Deep Dive podcast. Uh, you're joining us today with Professor Lorraine Whitmarsh, MBE who is currently Professor of Environmental Psychology at the prestigious University of Bath. She's also Director at the UK Centre for Climate Change and Social Transformations uh, and has con contributed to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and the UK Climate Assembly and much, much more. Uh, hi, Lorraine. Great to have you with us today. Um, I wondered if you could give us a little background about how you got to where you are and what sort of stuff you're working on at the moment. Yeah, thanks very much for inviting me. Uh, so, yeah, I guess my um, background, I did a PhD in, in uh, environmental psychology and have been kind of working in that area for a couple of decades now. And I guess as the issue of climate change has become more and more important, a lot of my work has moved from within academia to sort of policy and practice and, and the real world, if you like. And so working with, um, with with politicians and governments and local authorities, businesses and others is a, is a big part of what we do in our centre. So it's really trying to get insights into how to change behaviour, how to communicate climate change, how organisations can change um, into practice, how those insights can be actually used. So that's um, that's really what we're trying to do at the moment. Brilliant. Well, it sounds really interesting. and I'm looking forward to getting into it a bit more. I thought we could start by maybe talking about the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's recent Working Group 3 report, which has come out and obviously has a lot of uh, attention around it at the moment. I'm led to believe it includes a chapter dedicated to demand services and the social aspects of mitigation from climate change. And that's something of a first in the IPCC reports. Um, so I'm sure you've got a lot to say about that. And uh, I would welcome any hot takes you have. Yeah, absolutely. So so the latest report makes clear that we're not on track to tackling climate change, that we really, really have to uh, up our game. And I think for us, one of the really key take homes is that tackling climate change will not be about technology alone. There's no techno fix solution. Um, actually, we need really significant societal and behavioural change to significantly reduce emissions and to avoid the worst impacts of climate change. Most of the uh, progress that we've made to date in cutting emissions has come from shifting our energy supply uh, from fossil fuels over to lower carbon sources, including renewables. Um, and so that's got us some of where we need to go. But really what we need to do now is focus on demand, focus on the energy that we use, the consumption, uh, that you know people's consumption of energy, of services, et cetera. A lot of that is really about social science. It's about kind of changing behavior, changing organizations and, and society. So it's really what we do in our center actually is, is very much in this space. But another of the, the key take homes as well is that that social change, while it might sort of seem threatening to some people, actually it offers a whole range of wider benefits. It can actually improve well-being, health, uh, there are potentially economic benefits um, done right. It can um, improve equality, um, get people out of poverty, it can improve biodiversity and so on. So there's a whole range of these so-called co-benefits from climate action. Um, and I, so I think actually the message, while it is a quite stark, potentially quite scary message, it's also a good news message as well that 
done right, we can actually improve quality of life and well-being as well as tackling climate change. Interesting. So just to lay out for people who, who maybe um, aren't as familiar with what specific behaviour changes you might be referencing, um, I wondered if you could set out a scene for us, maybe the day in the, the, day in the life of someone in 2050 and how their behaviours might vary slightly or a lot maybe from our current behaviours. Yeah, absolutely. So what we know is that the biggest contributors to our carbon footprint at the moment are how we travel, how we heat our homes and our diets. So those are three big areas that we really need to change. We also do need to change our consumption patterns more generally. So the physical stuff that we that we buy and use. Um, but the single best thing we can do to cut our carbon footprint is to drive less. Um, so by 2050, I would hope that uh, the type of vehicles that we're driving might be electric vehicles. We're already seeing a, a shift in that direction. So we probably wouldn't have any petrol or diesel vehicles at that point. Um, but I think more importantly, it's about potentially traveling less as well. So uh, it's maybe doing more virtual interaction, maybe a bit more working at home or hybrid working, um, maybe socializing online some of the time or doing other things like having medical appointments online. So we don't necessarily need to physically travel as much to do the things we need to do. Some of it can be replaced by virtual interaction. And we've seen that is possible throughout the pandemic. So, and some of that's sticking. And I think we are going to see more of that uh, virtual interaction um, over the coming years and potentially more sort of localized lifestyles as well. So people might end up kind of shopping more locally because they're working from home more often. Um, and so a sort of growth of um, kind of local communities, a kind of um, uh, a regeneration in, in that sense. So that might change as well. Um, I think diets um, are starting to change as well. And so we're seeing a shift away uh, from meat consumption, particularly red meat consumption, towards more plant-based diets. And I think that is a trend even without government intervention, which is going to increase. But hopefully, because we do need to significantly cut emissions from food, hopefully there will be policy uh, measures that encourage that shift as well. Um, and in terms of energy use, I think homes will be using different sorts of technologies like heat pumps so more renewable technologies in people's homes to provide energy and heat. I would hope we would have better insulated homes as well by then and um, use energy in different ways, potentially maybe using less uh, than we are at the moment. So I think a number of things are going to be changing. And if what the IPCC report says is true, I hope we would have uh, a better society in general. So people might have higher quality, higher uh, well-being, higher, um, better health, uh, you know, more jobs, better um, quality of life in, in a number of different ways. So there are sort of wider benefits that I would hope that come from those shifts that uh, that I've mentioned. Yeah, absolutely. And the way you you laid the changes out there with the with these additional benefits makes it sound maybe not so bad. Why why do you think people have been so resistant or slow to change? Um, and do you think attitudes to that are starting to shift? Yeah, so I, I think in general, there is a tendency for, for people to resist change. I think you suggest something new and the the, the knee-jerk reaction is, no thanks, I, I'd rather stick with, with the status quo. There is this status quo bias that people have. But actually, what we know is that when you introduce change, often... People don't. Um, people people might experience it in very positive ways, and then think, actually, this is fine, and I'm really happy that this 
you know, this is the new situation. And we've seen that with things like, for example, congestion charges. Um, before they were implemented, there was generally not a lot of people in favour of them. But once they're implemented, people can see actually the air is cleaner. I can get where I want to go often quicker. Um, you know, there's no negative impact on business and so on. So all the fears that people maybe had haven't come to pass and actually it's it's better than they thought so their, pos their their attitudes become more positive after the change is implemented so there can just be a natural resistance to change that people have i think there's also there is often a rhetoric around going green that it means giving up things and you know that it's about hair shirt wearing and kind of uh going back to kind of um a, a very basic way of life but actually the evidence suggests that um, people that are very materialistic and consume a lot tend to be less happy. So in actual fact, people who have greener, lower carbon, less materialistic lifestyles tend to have higher well-being. So the more we can communicate that to people, I think the more we can say, actually, it's this is not about making you less happy. In, in fact, it may even make you more happy to, to have lower carbon lifestyles. So we need to sort of challenge that myth of consumption, really, that consuming more makes you happy. It's actually the opposite. And so we do, I think we do see some encouraging signs, though, in the in the attitudinal data. So we do regular surveys of the public. And in the UK, you know, a large proportion, a large majority of the public say they want more action on climate change and they want to play their part in tackling climate change. Um, so they are willing to change their behaviour, but critically, they want support to enable them to do that because there are barriers to doing to doing green things, to doing low carbon things. Sometimes it can be inconvenient. Sometimes it can cost more. So we need to remove those barriers. Um, but in in that situation, then people will change their behaviour. So I think I think we've got the right sort of uh, conditions for people to change. But we just need to remove the, the, those barriers and enable them to do so. And how do you think you tell apart sort of fears that are just associated with change and that maybe are unfounded and, and won't? actually come to anything and genuine fears you know for people's ways of life and how do we navigate those two maybe two different types of worries yeah i mean i think that's a good point i mean i think people are often coming from very different places they have different values they have different needs um and critical to really any sort of communication is understanding your audience so understanding what they value, what they need, and then tailoring your message accordingly. So that if you're talking about, for example, implementing clean air zones or congestion charges within a city, that you understand what could be the benefits that might appeal to people in, in that area that it might be about improving quality uh, the, the air quality in the area it might be about making the roads safer so their children can go to school um, without worrying about sort of injury um, it might be about actually getting places quicker because you know because there is a lot of congestion so there, there could be a lot of reasons why people might actually support those sorts of things but um, framed in the wrong way there's just an assumption that this is um, something which is taking away uh, some choice that we have, or this is maybe making things more difficult for us. Um, so it's important to work with people, I think, and understand where they're coming from and why they might have resistance. And there might be very, um, there might be very justifiable reasons why people are resistant. And I think acknowledging those concerns that people have um, in the design of policies is is also important because if there are groups, for example, disabled groups who who may be worse off by some sort of um you know uh, transport measure 
actually we need to design that measure so that those those groups are not negatively impacted. Um, so it is about understanding in order to improve communication, but also to improve the design of those those measures. So yeah, I think that's that's important to uh, acknowledge. Yeah, and to and to get a bit more specific about that, there's obviously a number of different ways you could encourage behaviour change. For instance, through regulation, you know, uh, you could maybe use social pressure, financial incentives, or just scaring people into changing. Um, what do you and, and your centre recommend maybe to policymakers and as the most effective method for uh, yeah instigating social change? Yeah, well, absolutely. So what we do know for sure is that information by itself tends not to be very effective. So that there, there, there is often a, a sort of a, a hope maybe amongst uh, policymakers that if you just educate the public, tell them about climate change, tell them what they can do, they'll do it. Um, and unfortunately, that, that doesn't work very well. That because of the sorts of barriers that I've mentioned, actually, it can be very expensive, or it can be inconvenient, or it can be just not what other people around you are doing. So it doesn't seem very normal. So you have to kind of address all of those barriers as well. So as you say, the sorts of things you can do then are to regulate, use economic measures like taxes and incentives. Um, uh, yeah, and you can also use, I suppose, softer measures as well. So you can um, uh provide people with information, education, try to start to change social norms as well, and show leadership, actually exhibit the sorts of behaviours that you want people to, um, to adopt themselves. So really kind of walk the talk. Um, and I think that is really important in terms of kind of conveying the importance and um, the credibility of messages that you that you want to convey. So yeah, I think it's what our um, research suggests is actually you usually need a combination of a number of different measures uh, to actually effectively change behaviour. So you'll probably need some sort of regulation, some sort of economic measure and, and information and other things too, um, to really effectively change behaviour. And, and the different areas that we're talking about in terms of diet, transport, energy, etc., you know, will need potentially different approaches. But key is probably just combining those things in a way that removes the behavioural barriers and starts to change norms and so on. Yeah, and obviously that's sort of coming from a, a policy uh, perspective. Is it possible for behavioural change to, to come about without government intervention, maybe through private companies or charities or community groups? Yeah, well, I think so. We recently did a review actually on... Um, transformation to decarbonize societies. And what we found was from looking at all the examples of where um, significant and rapid decarbonization has happened in the past, and there are examples oft, often on the supply side, but also to some extent on, on the demand side, where it's really worked well, government has played a very strong role. So there has been um, policy as part of the mix. But absolutely critical is that you have the buy-in of business and the public as well and that they they are acting and supporting that broader transition um and in fact you can't really have government intervening without that that social mandate to to change so you kind of need you need all of it working in concert and um so the public can call on governments they can protest or write to their their MPs to to call for change and then you
you get that kind of um, uh, that mandate to, to enact policy, businesses equally can create the conditions for consumers to um, to change their behavior and provide the products and services um, that are in line with a, a green economy. Um, and yeah, but governments need to also encourage and, and and put pressure on businesses to make those changes. So we sort of are in this this position where government, business, and and the wider public um, are sort of interconnected and dependent on one another and need to all change together. But um, but we all have sort of different you know we all have power in in different sorts of ways and so we can all put pressure on um on on other groups on organizations on the government to 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 shift in that um direction so yeah absolutely we need all all of society working together on it yeah certainly and that, and i guess that makes sense uh in the wider public's opinions on matters like these aren't always necessarily aligned with governments and hence you get sort of protest movements like we've seen in the, in the past few years yeah, I think that's right. I mean, in some ways, we could say the public is ahead of the government at the moment on net zero. I mean, that you know, there, there have been very visible protests really since I would say the um, IPCC's 1.5 degree report in late 2018. Um, that really seemed to sort of galvanize and catalyze a lot of the, the public sort of concern into you know why aren't we doing more actually this is this is really scary this is really urgent and then you had a sort of wave of um organizations and and local authorities declaring climate emergencies and and that sort of language of climate crisis has really come into the mainstream so it is things are changing but i think you know the, the government you know is probably not really as far along as as the public and many scientists would say they should be and one area that that maybe is some cause of celebration is the charge that was introduced on carrier bags, which is an area where behaviour change has been widely adopted by society. Um, I understand you've conducted a bit, a bit of research on that behaviour change. Um, I wondered if you could talk about what you think was done well and what maybe you would have done differently. Yeah, I mean, you, you're absolutely right to point to that being a really good example of where a policy effectively changed behaviour. Um, and just by applying a really small charge, 5p, on disposable carrier bags, we've seen an over 80% drop in disposable carrier bag um, use. And so it has really effectively changed the target behaviour. And it's actually had very widespread public support. And part of that is because the charge is used to support good environmental causes. So it doesn't go back into the government's coffers. And, and so people like the idea that it's doing good um, uh, with that with that money. Um, and it is an issue which the public is really concerned about. You, you actually have very widespread support for measures to reduce littering and waste. Um, our research shows that the idea of waste is something which people react against across the political spectrum. So it's something you can buy into, you know, who who likes the idea of waste? Um, that's something which intuitively seems like a bad thing, whoever you are. So I think the fact that the charge was kind of quite explicitly about reducing sort of, you know, waste and, um, you know, the, the idea of disposable carry bags, then that, that got a lot of buy-in. So it, it has worked really well in many ways. The only thing I think where it could have worked better is to really try to catalyze wider behavior change because people really focused on that specific behavior of 
bringing their own bag to the supermarkets instead of taking a disposable one. But they didn't generalize that to thinking about waste or consumption more widely. They didn't think about buying products that have a lot uh, that have a lot of packaging on and avoid avoiding those sorts of things. They didn't think about recycling or you know reusing or or anything else. So um, there could have been a wider communications campaign that sat around the the charge that tried to sort of make the links for people and say these are some other things that you can do and actually enable those wider um behavior changes through other policies actually but that sadly didn't happen so it was i feel like it was a little bit of a missed opportunity in some ways but as a policy in itself it it, it did work to do the you know the specific thing that it set out to do so yeah i think what we can learn from that is you know there are certain areas where it you know, the public will accept measures to um, change their behavior. And um, but that that might provide a window of opportunity actually to do more uh, and go further. Mm-hmm. And that's a theme I've seen coming up in your research in a couple of places that I think you refer to as sort of spillover effects where people take on one behavior and that causes them to take on other pro environmental behaviors as maybe as they form self-image of themselves as a pro-environmental person. I wondered if you could talk a bit more about that maybe and um, how it's juxtaposed with what you might think of like as a rebound effect where people maybe do one behavior and as a result they cut themselves some slack in other areas. That's right. Yeah. So we've been exploring the idea of positive spillover effects for a number of years now. The idea that, as you say, if you change one behavior uh, to go green, perhaps that leads on to wider behavioral changes in the same vein. But actually, what we found is that it it often doesn't happen naturally. It doesn't inevitably happen that if you start recycling, therefore you go on to um, reusing things and reducing your energy use and, and doing other things like that. Um, you need to be really, you need to, to create the links for people. You need to spell out those, um, those links. You need to enable people to do those wider things as well. So positive spillover often doesn't happen by itself. Uh, and sometimes it can be the case that you get negative spillover effects, as you've described. So you might actually get people recycling and thinking, oh, well, I've, you know, I can feel fine about kind of flying off on holiday and, you know, consuming lots. And uh, I've done my bit for the environment here. Therefore, I can sort of take take back a bit here. Uh, and that sort of so-called moral licensing does does happen sometimes that people feel like, better about doing bad things because they've done some good things um and we do definitely need to again sort of try to show the relative impact i think of different behaviors because as it happens recycling which is something people do quite a lot of although it is good for the environment it is one of the less effective things you can do to reduce your carbon footprint uh, many, many times more effective would be to reduce your car use or change your diet. So it is dwarfed really by some of these other behavior changes that we can make. So if people are flying off on holiday and thinking that they've sort of earned it because they've done a lot of recycling, they they definitely, you know, the, 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 it doesn't add up. Um, so yeah, we, we again, we need to sort of try and I think show the relative impact to behaviors, but also encourage and enable people to make those, those wider changes. Mm-hmm. And so the way to counteract that, maybe you seem to be suggesting that it would be around communicating uh, the links between the different behaviours. I think one of the other things I've seen is to do with like an asymmetry between people's intentions and and the impacts of their their actions. An example that came to mind for me was sort of the the drop in the use of plastic straws, which everyone thinks 
It's obviously making a massive environment, environmental impact and probably does in terms of plastic pollution, but maybe not so much in terms of emissions. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think, unfortunately, what we know is that the public don't have a very good sense of the relative impact of different behaviour changes. Um, so they tend to overestimate the contribution of changing waste behaviours like recycling, like cutting down on plastic straws, like taking your own bag to the supermarket. Um, and they tend to underestimate the impact of things like changing their diet. So there's not particularly good awareness that if you cut down on red meat in particular and dairy, that those make a really big difference to your carbon footprint. Um, and people sort of get, get a, have a reasonable sense of changing travel habits um, do make a difference. So they're kind of about right on that one. But there are definitely sort of misperceptions and, and gaps in people's understanding that we, that we need to fill, I think. So, yeah, I, I think trying to convey what works, what doesn't work. But also, I mean, as I've mentioned, communication by itself isn't enough. So we do need to encourage and enable people to make those changes but for the people who are trying to do their bit at the moment maybe their efforts aren't always in um, the most effective places so they could be sort of channeled a bit better yeah absolutely and i imagine with social media you sometimes get these sort of salient campaigns that just pop up and are out of control of maybe government well, I do think, yeah, I, I think sort of the media environment um, does tend to sort of focus on particular totemic behaviours. And so the plastic straws becoming like the thing. Um, and then it's it's almost kind of, yeah, you sort of forget, well, actually, that's minuscule compared to all the other things that we're consuming and doing. Um, and I, But I think as well, probably government messaging hasn't helped over the years because there has been this rhetoric of sort of every little helps do your bit um, and encouraging people to make very small steps um, like turning off lights and sort of recycling, trying to make it seem as painless as possible. And while you can sort of see the logic, you don't want to scare people off and say everything you're doing is wrong. Equally, if you sort of lull people into a false sense of security that by doing a bit of recycling and occasionally switching off a light, that's all you need to do. Unfortunately, what we now know is that that definitely isn't enough and that we are going to really need to change behaviours quite a lot more. So we need to sort of start saying, that's great, you've started to do those quite small things. Now you're going to have to need to do a bit more. But don't worry, there will hopefully be some policy along the way to encourage and enable you to do that. So we can't expect people to necessarily make these big changes voluntarily but I do think we need to be telling people there are going to be some big behavioral changes down down the track and actually as I've mentioned they aren't necessarily scary they can actually be good for you in many ways but but we need to support people and, and make them aware that that that's coming mm -hmm. and I understand one other way we can try and leverage changes is, is leveraging sort of moments of change um, and obviously in, we have quite a few tumultuous events in the past um, pandemic and the ongoing situation between uh, Russia and Ukraine. I wondered if sort of changes that maybe come about as a result of those very sh maybe well, short term events on a, on a grand scale, do they tend to stick and uh, or do government need to take action to ensure they, they stick around? 
Yeah, that's that's a great question. So yeah, a, a big focus of our research at the moment is when is best to intervene and the idea of moments of change providing opportunities to intervene more effectively. And moments of change are very broadly sort of times when people's habits are disrupted, there's 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 a rapid sort of change in the situation. But that can be anything as sort of um uh, individual as moving house or maybe having a baby or retiring some sort of like life transition um which probably you've planned and there might be sort of you know you, you're actually choosing to to do that um, um or it can be a much wider disruption that is probably unplanned and maybe very much unwanted by many people so yeah a war or a pandemic would be a great example of that or maybe an extreme weather event like a flood um, or travel disruption a sort of closure of a railway line or a, or a motorway and what we know of the research on all of these sorts of moments of change is that they fundamentally change our habits and habits are a you know quite a big barrier to getting people to do something different so in a, in a time when people's habits are quite strong and a stable time it's difficult to to get people to change their behavior but during these these moments of change there's, there's a lot of um the, the situation is changing and therefore it provides an opportunity for people to try out new behaviors and to encourage people to do things differently so during the pandemic, we've been tracking people's um, environmental behaviours. Uh, and of course, we've seen a lot less travel over the last couple of years. That's been sort of imposed on us. Um, but and but some people have actually enjoyed, in fact, most people have enjoyed the opportunity to work from home more than they have in the past. And so hence why uh, part of the reason why hybrid working is kind of continuing beyond the lifting of restrictions a lot of people like the opportunity to at least re reduce some of their commuting um, and employers like the opportunity to save money and and so there are business and economic benefits to doing that as well um, so we're seeing some of that continue some of the other changes that we saw people's um in people's behavior during during lockdown and restrictions though have have not injured to the same same extent so we did see people um spending their free time in very different ways you know sort of in their garden doing creative things and some of those hobbies have cha have continued a little bit but not to the same extent because we're now sort of back um you know traveling around more than we did so we have we don't have quite the amount of time to do some of those things and the food behaviors that we saw change that was quite interesting so people were um cooking from scratch a lot more using up leftovers they were they were being very experimental with their with their cooking and trying out new recipes and things and a lot of that contributed to reduced food waste um and um people were choosing to eat less meat and dairy as well actually so the carbon footprint of people's food went down a bit the and food waste went down as well as restrictions were lifted, we definitely did see something of a swing back to pre-COVID levels. Not quite the extent um, uh, of pre-COVID, but it, some of some of that has not been retained. As people are starting to go back into the office a bit more and and travel around a bit more, people ha again have less time to cook from scratch and to monitor what's in the fridge and, and stuff. So we, we do see food waste increasing again. Um, but it is interesting, and again, with the with with the with the war. Um, in Ukraine at the moment, there is a lot of attention on energy, um, energy prices, and and the cost of living crisis in general um, is is obviously drawing attention to this more widely. People are thinking about ways in which they can save energy, and for people that are fortunate enough to have 
enough money to invest in energy efficiency and renewable systems, there has been an increase in people looking into getting um, solar panels and insulation and other things that will make them a bit more resilient to the to energy prices. But but for some people, there isn't anywhere to go. They're already you, you know using as little energy as they they can. So there's it, there's a, there's a lot of differences in terms of how people are responding. But it does at least provide an opportunity for people to think about their energy use and where there is discretionary energy use, then to kind of try to reduce that a bit. But yeah, it remains to be seen whether if the situation sort of becomes a bit less pressured in the next sort of year or two, whether old habits will reemerge or not. It obviously depends, I guess, partly whether people do invest in some of these um, bits of infrastructure, like if they insulate their house and get renewables, then that's something that, that, that would stick around, you know, that would have longer term benefits. But um, some of the some of the energy efficiency uh, behavior changes may not necessarily last in the long term. Yeah, definitely. Uh, that certainly uh, chimes true to me as someone who tried the questionable lockdown baking maybe those these sorts of events as well they 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 obviously place a lot of pressure on people's mental health um and i wondered if you had any opinion on whether there is a balance to be held between uh, trying to leverage behavioral change and obviously not contributing to uh, one word that's used a lot is sort of eco anxiety and yeah if there's maybe a, a call for a, a bit more tact around these sorts of events mm. Yeah, we, we certainly have to be sort of aware of um, yeah people's mental health and how people are kind of responding in different ways. Um, I think with regards eco-anxiety, we have done some work on this in particular, and it is quite rare to, there, there certainly aren't high levels of people reporting serious eco-anxiety in the sense that it's disrupting their sort of day-to-day -day life and that their kind of functioning is impaired in in some way that's pretty that's very unusual nevertheless we, we do see very high levels of concern we do see that amongst young people in particular they feel anxious and frustrated and a sense that they there's nothing they can do about this but this is something that is going to you know be affecting them increasingly in the years to come so you know, you could interpret that as eco-anxiety of a sort. So yeah, the, the mental health aspects of climate change. I, I was part of um, IPCC's working group two, which looks at the impacts of climate change. And um, we actually don't know a huge amount about the mental health impacts of climate change. We do know that extreme weather events like floods um, and storms and things um, do uh, impact on people's mental health in terms of PTSD and stress and depression, that's pretty well documented. But what we don't know so much about is this sort of more, I guess, nebulous, diffuse, existential anxiety that a lot of people kind of feel to some extent um, by not having necessarily experienced an extreme weather event, but just realizing that the world is warming up and getting sort of more dangerous in a sense. So um, we do need more research on this, I think. But um, yeah, the evidence suggests that certain groups like young people might be particularly at risk. Yeah. And is there sort of a um, equality aspect to maybe behaviour change? You talked about there being some groups that their energy usage is probably already at a minimum, uh, maybe due to economic reasons. And there's obviously going to be certain groups, probably um, the less well off in society who are, who are going to be facing more mental health trauma as a result of behavioural changes needed for climate change. So I wondered if there was maybe a call for certain groups to change their behaviour more than others? 
Most definitely. And I think that's definitely come out of a lot of different reports. It was even in the, the IPCC's Working Group 3 report <clears throat> most recently, but before that, the uh, the UN uh, Emissions Gap report. And yeah, a lot. I mean, it's, it's very clear, really, that carbon footprint is directly correlated with income. Those on the highest incomes have an enormous carbon footprint relative to those on the lowest income. Um, and so the disparity is clear in terms of emissions. And obviously, that's, you know, the case between countries as well with the richest countries um, consuming and, and emitting far more than um, the poorest countries. And yet, obviously, the impacts are far worse for the poorest countries. They just have lower resilience and lower capacity to respond to those very serious impacts. So the equity is absolutely woven through or inequality really is woven through uh, climate change in terms of both the causes and the impacts. And so it has to be part of how we think about solutions. Um, and so that's why there are calls for a just transition that, we're, that we have to kind of think about how to change society in ways that actually address these fundamental inequalities and don't exacerbate them so that we're not saying um, that everybody has to change in the same way and therefore the poorest have to get poorer. Um, we're actually saying that because the richer, rich people have the biggest carbon footprint, yes, they have to change the most. Um, and we have to provide, you know, if there are going to be economic measures that get people to change, they have to do so in a way that don't impact negatively on, on those that are already the poorest. Um, what we have seen most recently in our research is that the people who are most anxious about net zero as an idea and, and tackling climate change tend to be those on the on the lowest incomes. I think they do assume that this will mean that they will be worse off. So we absolutely need to ensure that policies to address climate change don't that that doesn't happen. And equally that people working in sectors that are very high emission and which are likely to have to you know change radically. Um, that that if they are going to lose their jobs in those sectors, that they're reskilled um, and you know provided opportunities in greener sectors, so that yeah we don't have these kind of um, areas of the country and and groups of people who are completely left behind and and unemployed and so on. So we we need to think about those that side of the just transition as well. Absolutely, yeah, completely agree. So uh, my penultimate question for you, Lorraine, is. Um, around the future. I wanted to know where you see the future of your own work going and uh, what barriers there might be to sort of behaviour change um, in, in the coming years. Yeah. yeah, so I think our work really is trying to move increasingly into testing out ways of changing behaviour, changing organisations and so on. So we've already started to do that. We, we, we work with private, public and third sector organisations in partnership to design and test out new ways of doing things that are lower carbon and improve quality of life for people. But we want to do more of that. And we really want to ensure that we're targeting the most impactful behaviours as well. So, so that we're looking at things like transport, diet and energy use. Um, so that we're really cutting um, emissions rapidly, but also fairly, as we've talked about, fairness is really important. So that's, I think, where we're moving is much more into sort of action research um, and working in partnership and, and testing things out. Um, and yeah, and I think that's really where the future of behaviour change is. And it's, I suppose it's also about thinking about behaviour change in its broadest sense. So there tends to be an assumption, I think, that when we think about behaviour change, we're thinking about 
consumers changing their behavior, so buying an electric car or something, that's one part of behavior change. But actually, we can think about groups of people changing their behavior within organizations, for example, and communities. Um, we can think about a range of different roles that people have as parents or employees or um, peers and, you know, lots of different roles that we have and then potentially the influence that we can exert through those different roles. So behavior change actually covers a whole range of different things that people can do in the different um, contexts of their lives, actually. So that's where we really want to sort of increasingly shift focus away from just thinking of people as individual consumers to a whole range of different, you know, the public actually is a, is a, has lots of different roles and and things they can do. So we want to kind of um, expand our focus. Yeah, certainly. And and one of those roles might be a civil servant, for instance. Um, with that in mind, what future action would you like to see from government, policymakers, and civil service in general? I think one thing I'd I'd like to see more of is public engagement as part of the policy development process. And we've, we've seen lots of really good examples of that. You mentioned at the, at the beginning the Climate Assembly UK. That's a really nice innovative um, example of where the public, a you know, representative sample of the British public, were involved in thinking about the various different policy options for getting to net zero and, and providing concrete recommendations for government. Um, and they did provide very bold recommendations, actually. So I think kind of involving the public in a more routine way, actually, to shaping policies has a number of benefits. It can provide sort of substantive insights into policies that might be more effective. But also, I think they help bring people with us because we do need that buy in. And so we need to ensure that we're designing policy policies that have that wider public support. Uh, so I do think more participatory policymaking, I would I would have a call for that. Um, I would also say, listen to social scientists, um, not only the economists and the behavioral economists who might talk about nudge. I mean, nudge, there's a great set of techniques there, but there's a much wider set of techniques for changing behaviors and organizations and communities um, that are yeah, uh, extremely effective. And we're getting evidence to suggest, you know, what works and what doesn't work. So, um, yeah, use use your social scientists would be my second call. Brilliant. Well, it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you today, Lorraine. Um, so thank you very much for coming on. Lovely to be with you. We hope you've enjoyed this Environment Deep Dive. You can head to CSUN online for more content, events and networking opportunities. Make sure to subscribe to us on Twitter, YouTube and your favourite podcast app so you can keep an eye out for new episodes coming soon.